0: David Ferrier is, uh, was he Aussie?
1: No, or he he's was a, a Kiwi. Kiwi. You he's know a how Kiwi. you can tell? Do you Sorry. know you can tell if someone's a Kiwi? You how? ask them to count to 10. And when they get to the word after five and before <laughs> seven, Kiwis say sex. Sex? Sex.
0: As opposed to seeks? Uh, it's supposed to seeks. Six. Six.
1: six. Seeks. They say sex. And that's uh, that's okay. how you're supposed to know. Watch, I probably got that backwards. But anyway, he is from New Zealand. He's a yes. podcaster, a journalist. Oh, a documentarian. He did a great documentary called Tickled.
0: A serious journalist. He really yeah. goes deep and chases the story and does the job.
1: And yet is a very funny guy who started us off with a conversation about the time he had to quit his pet bird, Keith or Keith. We, we're not sure. We didn't want to ask. We didn't want to be rude.
0: A parent that was very attached to him. And he also, we came to know him by way of the armchair expert family tree, which is also how we came to know each other.
1: Yeah. So with that, we give you David Ferrier.
2: I was one of those people you see with a parrot on their shoulder. I was literally that guy. Mm. But started attacking, attacked a lot of other people that weren't me.
1: Um, oh, became to quite defend defensive
2: you. And, and also found his little voice. So he started screaming at all hours of the day and night. And then combined that with my job, I was working in a newsroom in New Zealand at the time and traveling quite a bit. And I just didn't have time to spend with poor Keith. So... Yeah, I had to quit Keith. I had to find an adoptive home for him. And it was a really difficult process because you get really bonded to these weird little creatures. How
1: know? long were you with Keith?
2: I was with Keith for about three years.
1: Three years and then you adopted him. My- that actually, I mean, I was sort of joking about it being quit, but that is really hard to quit a living creature.
2: Yeah, it was hard. And it's 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 maybe it's hard to understand if you're not a bird person, but Keith did love me. Like Keith latched onto me. Keith knew me. If I was away for a week and came back, Keith would immediately like jump on me. Conyers are like very cuddly birds. So he'd live under my shirt and like he'd poke his little head out the top. That was Keith. He'd just be here. And so giving him (laughs) up, yeah, it was super tough quitting Keith. I I still feel guilty about it, Mm. (laughs) which is weird, but I do.
1: Was it better for the bird never to see him again?
2: Yeah because he needs a new bond yeah because literally if I went there he would just revert to being like oh my goodness that's David he'd want to be with me all the time and so I think it's best just to let him be and a twist to the story sort of it does have sort of a happy ending turns out keith is uh, a female and met another bird and had eggs and now has babies so keith is a very happy mother since <laughs> she left me which is great a great result i think
1: and does she still have the name keith did they keep that keith,
2: keith still keith yeah very confusing that. for everyone but no like keith was the name keith is stuck
1: that is a fantastic story. Well, <laughs> thank you for joining us today. We didn't even introduce ourselves, but I'm Julie.
0: I'm Chad. David, I actually, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but there was a question that's top of mind for me coming into here. And hmm. you seem like someone who is possessed by conspiracies and thinking about the truth. I, I am. Is there something that you think all of us well self-regarding left-leaning smart kind wanting to be kind people agree on or think is true that you think is not true ooh oh something like the left has like like there's something wrong. that we think yeah. can't
1: be like can't something- be true
0: yeah, something that's sort of in vogue to like believe right now, you know, something that we're all saying is the thing and that some voice in your head is saying is like actually not the thing, or maybe I want more information. it's a
2: really it's a really good question, and it's probably going to be a disappointing answer and a very leftist answer. but there's no giant sort of alarm bells ringing about anything right now. I think the last thing I can think of that members of the left really got dragged into was this idea sort of before it came completely unhinged the idea of children being trafficked or yeah, there yeah. being something with kids there was a conspiracy right. that Wayfair which was this you know online shopping portal was trafficking children and that kind of drew in left leaning people in its early infancy
1: I've listened to all of your armchair and dangerous which is your oh, awesome. uh, thank you your cool. conspiracy theory podcast under the Dex Shepherd umbrella and then also now your flightless bird again, bird talk, about you being stranded (laughs) in America. And the way, I get why people would get sucked into that, the idea of child conspiracy, because you think, what if it's killing kids not to believe it? Where's the harm in believing it?
2: Kids are being trafficked, like there is child trafficking. It's something that happens. It's something that is real. So the idea that it's maybe happening a little bit more frequently than we think it is, isn't out of the that's not right. a crazy concept to think, but where it went from there became very deranged. What, and what is
0: it about that type of conspiracy or any type of conspiracy that really catches catches fire? Like, what is it about those ones that really captivate? Is it like the the quality of the story? Is it? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think it's it's stuff primarily
2: that has an emotional resonance with it. So it's something that you hear and you feel outraged or shocked or you feel that you must change, you know. I think of something, I mean, rewind to I don't know if you guys remember Coney twenty twelve, the big social media campaign to rid the world of a dictator. It's an incredibly oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I do remember I don't this. I don't know and that. I
1: participated in it.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I'd say I participated. this is I want to hear from you about this because I guess Top line Coney 2012 was this incredibly successful viral campaign. It went wild. That sucked the left in like nothing I've seen before. So Julie, like how did you first hear about <laughs> uh, okay, that? Okay,
1: 2012, just to give some context, I had three children age at that point, three, three, and five. So I was not doing all the research I could have. I was working all day, every day on Modern Family. But mm-hmm. Rico Rodriguez and Nolan Gould, two younger kids on the show at the time, we were probably about, they were probably about 13 at that age. Mm-hmm. And they had just gotten phones and they had just gotten into... Doing deep dives in the internet, and they were the ones who told me, you know, do you know about this? They would come and say, do you know about? I remember the day Nolan and God, I love you, Nolan. Nolan goes, have you ever heard of this this company? It's called um, Restoration Hardware. You know, so there right. were sometimes when they would come to you, you were like, yeah. Yes, yes, I have (laughs) heard of, right? Like, this was something so brand new to them. So when they came to me with, have you heard of this thing? And they're taking down a dictator and it's really working. I was like, "Oh, oh, okay. And then I did a little, I did this much research and for the listeners, it's like none. What I found was, I was like, can't hurt, right? And everyone was saying, this is working, it's working. We're taking down mm-hmm. this dictator. People were posting pictures that said, take down. What did they say? It was like
2: arrest. It was all about arresting Joseph Kony, who was this yeah. Ugandan sort of cult yes. leader. But the idea of the campaign, like, let's make this guy famous. We want everyone to know everyone the face know of name. Joseph Kony. Yeah. And if we can find him, if enough people know about him, eventually he'll get arrested and will be brought to justice. And the left <laughs> just leapt on it. You know, it well, was, was a bad, hit. right? <laughs> oh, You'd put it, there was a date that it was hit and when everyone would go out at night and put up their posters. And so eventually, like, the idea is this blanket (laughs) campaign would just roll out, there were t-shirts. The original film had 103 million views pretty quickly. It just went crazy. And it all came, at the end of the day, it it all came to nothing. And nothing came from it except viral fame for a lot of its creators. so it was a very unusual campaign. And it's that thing, I guess, it was an emotional context of like, oh, this guy is awful. It had this really emotive short film that went with it. It felt very real.
1: Wasn't he uh, recruiting child soldiers? And Yeah, and, and for the record, he, Joseph
2: Koenig is an atrocious person. That right. wasn't incorrect. Okay. That, that's real information. But the idea of this viral campaign <laughs> being the thing to take him down was sort of outrageous. And the amount of money that they raised for that was outrageous. And I think it's like child trafficking. It's this thing that you hear about yeah, And you just want to help. Like, Julie, you want to help. You want to get on board. Yeah. And that's why it went so big. question is going to
0: sound absurd, but it's like, <laughs> you really want to help? Like, you really care about that?
1: Well, it, when you, I, you I mean, see like, this there's video... there's bad stuff
0: everywhere. It's but you like, see what? this
1: video and you go, "There, that's exactly it. There is bad stuff everywhere. And there's bad stuff all the time. And somebody's saying, here's something you can actually do. We got an idea. Yeah. I also thought, well, maybe this will be the first one. And then there'll be more and more where it's sort of like you know, mob justice where people are so outraged and we make this person famous and then he, they get taken down. And it is something yeah. you could do as opposed to like doom scrolling and seeing that, you know, global warming and everything's going to hell and children are being trapped all that. This felt like something you could actually do.
2: Yeah, it gave you a real thing that you could dive into. I can, I get this poster sent to me in the mail and I can go and put that up on a wall. I can wear this t-shirt. Yeah, And, you know, it, it's... It was such a slickly made documentary that it's what we see in other kind of outrageous events as well. Like when the pandemic hit, there was this sort of pseudo documentary Mm. called Plandemic that was full of misinformation. It went viral on social media. The entire thing was sort of to say that the pandemic was a fictional entity, sort of created to control us, it was that typical conspiracy narrative. But much like Coney 2012, it came with like a really slick video, and people got on board. And people love being able to take part in these narratives. So to be able to hear about something awful that's happening, whether it's taking down you know as a dictator or whether it's the idea that oh we've been lied to about the pandemic, it's all fake. If you're given like something to do. And that's why why so much sort of modern conspiracy stuff is so big, is you're given the tools. Like QAnon was this interactive thing you could take part in. It wasn't just a conspiracy yeah. theory you could read about. You could jump online, you could dissect it, you could find clues, you could take part. And that's such a powerful thing if you can take part in the narrative. And I think that's something that's something like Kony and a lot of the conspiracy stuff we've seen more recently alliance.
0: What's like the human thing that that's tapping into? Is it like, you've said it a few times, like you want to take part, you want to be in the School of Fish. Is that about people wanting to have meaning? Is that just people wanting to have something to do when they wake I think up in you the nailed it.
2: I think it's. I think it's having meaning and understanding. I think it's claiming back the narrative and Feeling that you have the truth about a situation, I think it's similar to the feeling that religion gives some people. It's certainly a, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it it makes you feel like you get what goes on, you get the answers. I know where I go when I die. That's a great feeling. With conspiracies, it gives you this really grand, exciting, Mission Impossible esque story that kind of makes the world make sense. Like, oh, maybe my life isn't going so well because there are. You know, nefarious powers controlling the universe, you know, beyond some bad leaders in the government. But it's bigger than that. There's a new world order controlling things. It gives you a story that you can latch onto that's comforting. And it's comforting because it explains your
1: problems. Can I take the flip side of that and say, have Please. you found any conspiracies, started down the road with any conspiracies and found out, oh shit, it's actually true?
2: <laughs> oh, and yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's the thing. Like, there are plenty of conspiracy theories that, you know, a, a conspiracy is a group of people coming together who are powerful to uh, cover something up. I mean, yeah. of course, this happens all the time. And I'm sure there's things that we're not aware of that will come out in the future. I mean, Watergate was a conspiracy that's real. You know, Watergate right. happened. That's a thing. Probably the one that I always sees on as being just so mind-blowing because it sounds so unreal is something like MK... Ultra, you know, Ultra, these yeah. secret programs, you know, trying to figure out mind control on the, you know, unknowing American public and lacing people's drinks with LSD who are in the Air Force. And MKUltra was this, yeah, secretive program to try and tackle mind control. It's outrageous as any conspiracy theory that is fake and untrue, and yet it happened. What do we call that? Is there a name for a conspiracy that's
0: actually legitimate.
2: No, and that's the point of it. It's like, that's all the same. That's what gets so confusing about it. And a conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory. (laughs) And it's like, I mean, that's a frustrating thing. There are real conspiracy theories and we need to find out what those are. Unfortunately, I think humans are just really good at getting bad information and running down some trails that lead nowhere.
1: I can't remember if I was reading it. My, My son's super into the Unabomber. And There is, he was at Harvard (laughs) at the time, Uh, it's Oliver, my oldest, he's super into the Unabomber and um, I don't know if I was listening to a podcast or watching a documentary, I can't remember which one it was, but he was at Harvard at the time of MKUltra and they believe he actually may have participated in those experiments. Yeah didn't work out but he was he was you know oh no he, he's to to MKUltra, he was crazy to going in
2: <laughs> I mean there's a there's an incredible book chaos that's written by a a journalist who's a pretty incredible writer and he posits that Charles Manson was part of the MK Ultra program really he was picking up a lot of medical supplies from the Hate Asbury district and he was in the same building that it was discovered later one of the doctors that was quite high up in MK Ultra was working from, and so you know you've got this hippie who is sort of a nobody. He's sort of a musician, you know, likes uh, promiscuous sex, like a lot of people did back then. Sort of suddenly, you know, only nowhere, back then, be-
1: David. Really, let's not. Let's <laughs> crazy, not, right? Let's crazy not relegate really promiscuous sex to the sixties. <laughs> <60s.
2: laughs> you know, out of nowhere, he becomes this incredibly powerful cult leader who has people under his control who will go out and kill on his behalf. Right. And you look at a situation like that, and it is deeply unusual. Like, this guy was just like another hippie. How did he get these people under his control to go out and kill on his behest? And what this book posits is all the crazy coincidences around Manson and how he brushed up against different people involved in MK Ultra. and the whole book sort of outlines the case that maybe he was an un- willing part of that program. Which, again, it's in territory, which is definitely more probably not real. But it's areas like that that journalists have written about where it's you can kind of see how, you know, there could be something in it. And I think that's where conspiracy theory culture gets really interesting because it's figuring out what could be real, what's blatantly false, what's damaging, what do we need to look into further. It's a a fascinating area to be intrigued by.
0: I want to ask a practical question to make use of your understanding of conspiracy storytelling and people rallying around a cause? It's a very selfish question. So I am a writer. Everything that I read about enterprise tells me if I wanna get super rich, I need to like build an obsessive audience (laughs) behind whatever I'm doing um, or whatever I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. What do the people who are able to generate rabid audiences behind their conspiracies and their causes what do they know how to do that I need to know how to do? How do they do that? Yeah, like, how can you utilize their forces of evil for good, basically? <laughs> well, yeah, for, exactly Or at least that. for or his for, bank or account. Or for my own purposes, <laughs> whether good or evil.
2: Yeah. You know, honestly, I think you just need to be a really good storyteller. All the conspiracy theories... Just be that better at your off, job, Chad. <laughs> <bit> of, <laughs> no, a, but no, not necessarily telling... it Like, objectively, the stories are probably terrible that are going to make you popular people want a story that's just outlandish and entertaining and that's what sells i mean there's a reason alex jones on Infowars uh. is so big and is still big is because he just would just tell the most outlandish stories and people Love those stories. I mean, you know, you you had a lot of school shootings happening, and Alex Jones was the one very early on who was pushing the idea that, hey, before you know, we all know about this now, but back then this wasn't in the the public forum at all. That you know, oh, they're all crisis actors. No one mm-hmm. died. The parents are lying. This was all orchestrated by the government to get tighter gun restrictions. Right. So Alex Jones became popular because you could turn on Infowars and you could just get the most. Entertaining batshit stories fed to you, and a good story sells. I guess like any good product.
1: Okay, so I watched watched the tickle documentary. I've heard lots of your podcasts. You are somebody who doesn't. Quit on a story. Tickle documentary being the most obvious example, you were threatened physically, financially, legally. And I imagine at other points in your career as well, you've run up against people really giving you a hard time because you are making them uncomfortable Hmm. or you're examining some truth they don't want to be told. Have you ever quit on a story? Or an investigation?
2: Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I've definitely quit stories, but it's more because they didn't go anywhere. I'm sort of I'm yet to encounter a story where I quit because the threats were too large or and I'm not trying to make myself sound brave. I just haven't encountered that thing that is too far yet. Like I, I don't think it's worth dying over a lot of the stories I look into, which are usually sort of nefarious, strange internet mysteries and that kind of thing. I become very cautious around stories when there's a lot of money involved. There's a New Zealand company that's worth billions called Zuru, which is like a toy company. And, you know, there's been press recently about them, including what I've written about them, that show that this this company, there are various allegations out there about them. That's a company, because they have so much money, Though I'd be reluctant and very cautious about what I report on a company like that. The more money a company has, the more terrifying they become. They're also a company that I understand is a fan of lawyers. That's another red flag. It's always like a balance. It's like a lot of my work is independent documentary or what I'm writing as an individual on web where my newsletter. I don't have a big newsroom backing me. I don't have big money. And so it's like a cost risk analysis of, is it worth outing this person or this organization for certain things? Is it worth it for the victims and for me being able to carry on and do what I do? Like many things in life, it's like legal threats are the most difficult thing to encounter because when you're facing people (laughs) with a lot of money, they can just drag you through the court for the sake of it and ruin you that way, even if they don't have a valid point.
1: But when you back down from something like Zuru,
2: what was it? Zuru. Have Zuru, them back down. Just cautious.
1: Just cautious. Let's just play it out that they then start stopping you with lawsuits and you realize you have to quit. What would it, or what has it in the past with other stories? What is it? Does it cost you anything emotionally? Do you stay up at night and go, fuck, I'm not a warrior for the truth?
2: I have been writing about this mega church in New Zealand since April over on Webroom. And it's a church that is this classic mega church model and Throughout my reporting, it became very apparent that this church had left a lot of victims in its wake. You know, there were sexual assault and rape allegations that had been swept under the carpet. Interns were being, like, worked until they're having sort of mental breakdowns. Church leaders were, like, physically grabbing people. Mm. So... I've been working on that story since April. And the thing that wears you down is more just sitting with these sort of horrific stories in your mind rent-free while the organization doesn't care. So as you're reporting on it, you're hoping that everything you report or document will create real change. And what really wears me down is when you're reporting on something and it's objectively awful, but the organization, the institution just is sticking to their guns and just feels so invincible. And you know, these mega churches are protected by so much money that they get in tithes and they're so set in their ways. It's just such a frustrating feeling. Like you really do feel like the David Goliath, like a little guy against this massive entity. It's almost a corporation. And that that's the stuff that wears you down. It's just like this frustration that people can't see that they're hurting people and are not open to changing. That gets incredibly frustrating.
0: I want to free Julie of what I said just before you jumped on here which was I said uh, can we not (laughs) can we not do I don't even remember how I said it it was like can we not do the show where white people tell me how dumb Christianity is but if that's the direction that this show goes it's fine but
1: Christianity isn't dumb I don't think any any religion is dumb and that isn't what he even heard David say I hear no I didn't I didn't hear that at all Mega churches. uh, this and this particular mega church could be. Did, was this, were you involved with this mega church as a child? You were raised.
2: Yeah, I was raised in the Baptist. Yeah, so I, I come from Christianity. And yeah, I totally agree. Like, yeah. I think it's lazy just to bash Christianity as a whole. I, I think it's just, we can be critical of certain institutions within a certain religion. But yeah, it gets boring as well. It's like, there's enough bagging in megachurches. I guess it's just something yeah, we, all, mega churches we all know it. And
0: they It's just
2: something that I was just recently involved in and just, just coming face to face with how they operate is just, it's a real grind, you know? You just like wish yeah. some people could wake up and just change their
0: ways you are based in los angeles now is that correct i am
1: by no choice of his own
0: by no (laughs) No. choice. yes your whole group being held captive and then maroon that's what you said but you're reporting still on things that are happening elsewhere in, in the world you're from new zealand and so you have this international perspective or a worldly perspective and i'm just wondering do you think that we here in this country are especially predisposed to believe things that are not true?
2: Uh, not necessarily. No, I think we're all predisposed to believing things that aren't true. I think what I've noticed in America and I think America is just the first horse out of the gate at the moment on all of this stuff. I mean, I think America for a long time has led the way with a lot of things. And I think certainly <laughs> in a lot of the cultural discussions in the West, I think America is the one that is leading those discussions. And so mm. I think a lot of the bad ideas and the bad conspiracy thinking comes out of America because it's a big culture here. There's a lot of people. It's loud. They have a lot of influence.
1: Is it also not privilege as far as the internet, technology, the way that you can communicate rapidly, the way these conspiracy theories grow, the way QAnon went like wildfire was the ability to reach people on laptops who had extra time. But I do think it starts with you have to have the infrastructure in place. And th- so it's not necessarily going to be certain areas of the globe at first.
0: That feels almost like complimentary of us. Like, I don't a lot think of, so. <laughs> Well, a lot of countries have the infrastructure. I think from what David has said, it sounds like our ability to tell stories, maybe, that might be the thing that we lead the world. But we don't lead the world on technology. Like, we who don't do lead you, the world who on leads infrastructure. the world on
1: technology? China? China. And what do they do? They monitor the fuck out of their internet. They don't have open forums and they That's don't true. even have regular Google. So I also think
2: a big part of it here, as well as it's a bit of a melting pot for conspiracy culture because, you know, just the economy here is certainly has its issues. And I think there's just such a. There's so much inequality in America, Mm. and politically as well, for a long time, it just feels to me, and I'm certainly not a political expert, but it feels like there's certainly a a line in the sand between Democrats and Republicans, and they're very opposing forces. And I just think that kind of sets up this battleground for some of these bad ideas as well. I also think, you know, not to go back to religion, but america is a very christian country and there's big sort of there's big ideas about good versus evil that are kind Mm, of like mm. out there seeded in a lot of people's brains and i think that good versus evil fight the huge inequality here and this big us versus them in the political realm that's all perfect seeds to grow conspiracy theories from it's like the perfect melting pot so i think that mixed in with America's like, love of telling stories and having that culture and being so connected and so vocal, I think that all kind of like boils up into creating a lot of these really bad ideas, like something like QAnon, which by the way is now morphed and this sort of isn't QAnon anymore. It's now morphed. QAnon seeded such big ideas. They now exist without it even being called QAnon. They're just in the right. American culture and they're not going anywhere now.
1: Can I ask a question about another quit of yours?
2: Please. I love quitting. It's one of my favorite things to do. That <laughs> I,
1: I'm framing as a quit, because the name of the show is Quitters. And I'm very much of the straight-A student that has to like keep everything on topic.
2: I support that.
1: So in 2012, was it? Mm. You quit being private about how you identified sexually. Yeah. You weren't closeted. You didn't see any need to share this information. It was, not inf- it was not important for the world to know that you're bisexual. You're like, it's my business. Who gives a shit? But because of what was happening politically, I believe, in New Zealand, were they yes. coming, up, coming for gay marriage, I believe? Yeah, exactly. You felt it was the right time for you to declare that you were, at that time, in a same-sex relationship that you are bisexual. You certainly mm-hmm. weren't closeted, but how did quitting that element of your privacy...
2: For me, it was super important. I mean, I was raised like, in a really like loving, great family, but they were certainly a religious family, and so being gay wasn't like an automatic big thumbs up. It was like right. more, and you know, I went to a, like quite a conservative Christian school as well, and so coming out and saying I'm in a same-sex relationship certainly you wouldn't be like patted on the back and like right. celebrated. Yeah. It would be a problem, and I was super aware of that, which is why I yeah kept quiet about it for a long time as I was figuring out who I was. You know, it's silly because hopefully we live in a world at some point where you shouldn't have to say what you're interested in sexually. It's just kind of like who gives a shit. But yeah, we were debating gay marriage at the time in New Zealand and it just seemed, and I was on like TV in New Zealand as like this entertainment reporter. And so I had a semi very tiny public profile. And in my thinking, it was just like the more people that just come out and say, oh yeah, I'm with someone who's the same sex. It would just like normalize it and give some faces to that particular cause. And in doing that, it was like a huge relief. I think
1: when you're walking around
2: with any, Mm. you know, sexuality is like a really big part of who we are, right? It's a big part of how we, yeah, our identity. It's a a huge thing. And so what I didn't really clock is, and never acknowledging that or talking about it, you're kind of pretending that a bit of you doesn't exist. And to publicly say it in the media in New Zealand at the time, it actually had this knock-on effect just for me personally of just making me feel more comfortable in my own skin. And it certainly was a certain pushback. But overall, it was, yeah, it felt great to quit the whole, I'm just going to pretend to be, I don't know what, but let's not talk about it.
1: <laughs> it's an important part of our identity, but it isn't really for straight people because that's sort of the assumption. But it would be really interesting if everybody had to sort of identify as like, Chad, missionary. Julie, <laughs> not into Cunnilingus. If that was literally the thing, because your sexual identity seems to be very important if you are somewhere on the queer spectrum, and yet if you're straight, it's just behind the curtain. It's just you. Oh, you do man woman. St- you do man woman stuff. So who cares? But it would be really fascinating if everybody was like instead of putting up their pronouns, had to say things like, "Once a month is fine for me." Got to be on top, Julie. <laughs>
0: Like, I, I, I I think, <laughs> uh, I can only speak for this identity, but like, I think for men, being straight is like an incredibly important part of your identity. The performance of straightness is such a part of your walk. You
1: don't think it's default?
0: Mm, I mean, I think you get so comfortable in it that it becomes a default. But I think straight guys and I think non-straight guys also do so many things to appear straight, like constantly. You, you know what I mean? Like... Posture-wise, eye contact, like mm-hmm. dressing, all the things.
1: And that's straight, or is that considered masculine?
2: I think it's sort of both, aren't they, at the same time, almost? They're kind of
0: synonymous with each other, would you say, Chad? I, I, Yes, I would. I think, yeah, the straight dance is the same as the masculine dance. It's like shoulders square, you know, kind of piercing direct eye contact, speaking from this part of your diaphragm, like, you know what I mean? Tell me what you think, though, Julie. I don't think of myself necessarily this way, but I've had people say like, man, you're super straight, you know? Like, you're a super straight dude. And the, and what they're saying is like, there is something about you that you're like giving off straightness, whether intentionally or unintentionally.
1: I feel like straightness, it, to me, it's always an assumption. Like I said, that it's, it's sort of the default assumption. And then, which is, this is, and this is not correct. I don't think that this is right in our society to do. And then that if somebody doesn't uh, come off as straight male or straight female and very representative of those things, then you start to question. Then you're interested. And then it becomes like, well, what do you do in bed? And where do you put things? And it's like, why are we asking where we put things when we just met somebody and it doesn't really matter? But I'm wondering, because of what Chad just asked, Dave, did you quitting being private about your sexuality? Because I don't want to say closeted. I don't feel like that's, mm. that doesn't feel right to me. Unless it feels right to you. Did you think you were closeted or just private?
2: I guess. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I guess I was. I think you're probably closeted as long as people are assuming you're straight when you're not. So I guess yeah, I, yeah, I was closeted, I suppose.
1: So were you able to drop some of the need to present as uber-masculine? Because I'm not, I'm. Yeah, and, no, it's, and correct it's a, it's my a, that's language. That's a really
2: interesting question. I think probably, there was probably a certain pressure at school to be like one of the boys, right? So like you join a sports team yeah. or you do those things that guys would do. I think potentially I wouldn't have felt I needed to do that if I wasn't worried about how I presented in a way. But there was, mm-hmm. also wasn't a hugely dramatic change for me. Like I was kind of always being myself. If anything, it was just more... I think which came naturally, like more confidence. Like I was a very shy kid. I could never speak, didn't want to speak publicly. I'd get super nervous around other people. I didn't want to be in certainly in front of a camera or anything like that. And I think one of the things about, yeah, I suppose coming out was that I just felt more myself. And from that felt way more comfortable to do other stuff, whether it's what I'm doing now, which is generally sort of more public on camera or on a microphone sort of public work
0: david and you're very precise in your language and when we were talking about conspiracies you said i think i think i think i think now we're talking about your sexual identity and and i've heard you say i felt felt relief i felt this i felt that did you actually feel something physically in your body when you um i'm not now i'm trying not to say stop being closeted but When you came forth and said, you know, this is who I am. Did you actually feel differently? You know, it's like a weight off.
2: It's like if you've been carrying around. Yeah, you absolutely do. Because you're always thinking about how am I going to have this discussion or does it have to be a discussion? And I felt kind of a huge relief because it was in like the press in New Zealand because it was... Because I say I was on TV at the time in New Zealand. And so it was sort of reported on in gossipy little magazines like in the paper. And like, New Zealand's a very small place. We've only got five Mm. million people. And so I almost got to tell everyone at once through that. And it was just out there suddenly. And that felt great. It just felt like, oh, a relief. I don't have to go and tell everyone individually. It's said (laughs) now people can like it or hate (laughs) it or do whatever. And I just don't need to think about it anymore. And yeah, it was just a sense of... Thank God
0: that's done. It felt great. Good. That's fire. I yeah, like that's it. pretty cool. Mm. I am gonna start talking about going to therapy and <gasps> like the fact that I go to therapy. I'm gonna try not to propagandize it or be a disciple of it because I don't think that's Do you see really my the oh, face. thing. Now you can, yeah, but but
1: I am. Sh- I-, I did. I've not heard about this.
0: Okay. Yeah. In in um in my Audible project, there's a whole episode on just that. You know, Oh, you talk about how mental that.
1: the mental health industry is basically becoming a a money-making machine.
0: Yeah, while also being yeah, while also being for which it is like a oh, super I think it's duper a super interesting out of area control. about
2: what's happening with therapy and how it's sold to people and what's done. Totally. I think it's a it's a really fascinating space.
0: Every time I feel so scared to say that I do or feel something. Out loud in mass to my community or my family or whoever, it always feels much better than it was scary on the front end. I mean, almost yeah. every single time. Is that made up, or do you all think that's actually so? But I think everything's worse in your head, right? Like every every scenario is worse
2: in your head. Like once you say something and it's out there, it's it's so much easier than you thought it would be.
1: I don't know. You guys obviously have not run your mouth in public the way I have. I, true. I, I, I mean, I, I, if I thought about it first, those times, yeah, it is worse in my head. But when I'm not thinking about it, I'm like, who gives a shit? And I just let it fly. Then I regret it almost 99% of the time if, I, really? if I'm not <laughs> thinking about it. But
0: You stew on it later?
1: Oh, fuck yes. I'll stew on half of the things I said today, even though I haven't said anything bad today. But I've definitely just gone off before being like, oh, well, I'm being funny, or oh, they asked the question, and really regretted that I Mm. didn't sit and think about it. I used to be really scared when I first was sort of in the public eye. And one of the things I was scared of was people finding out that I'd been in a mental hospital when I was uh, in high school. And that that somehow would be this giant oh my God, she's crazy or color my ability to get jobs. That, yeah, I thought long and hard and with Chad, am I going to say this? Am I going to say this out loud? I'm going to tell that story. Hmm. And that absolutely feels better to have out there because it turns out no one cares. Nobody cares.
0: Julie, I've heard you say before, like I am never going to ask somebody else to keep my secrets. Yeah. You'll share something that's quite personal or grave Uh or whatever, and you'll be like, I'm not expecting you to keep my secret, which I think is unusual. And to tie it back to the conspiracies and stuff, is a part of the, I don't know, Hmm. the story around Uh conspiracy. Is it just, do people like to be in on a secret? Oh, yeah. You
2: nailed it. You just nailed the whole thing, Chad. It is. It's that feeling of like having hidden knowledge, knowing stuff that other people don't know. That's like a really powerful, wonderful feeling. So yeah, being in on a secret is totally it.
0: And does that fuel you as a journalist? Do you like to feel like I learned the truth and now I get to tell the people?
2: Oh, hell yeah. No, I love to feel like I have stuff before other people have it. There's this feeling, like whether it's something like Tickled or the stories I write on webworm or the podcasting work. If I feel I have something and I've found it out, anyone that's into journalism, it's embedded into your brain at birth. It's just this thing where you get a real selfish thrill <laughs> from being first to something, for knowing something, you're the one that gets to tell people about it. And you, mm. you know, you justify it, and I think rightfully so, is the fact that you're telling information that's really important. It's not some like terrible bit of gossip. It's outing someone doing something awful. But yeah, very selfish in that it's a great feeling to be there first. Have you, oh, um, have you ever been
1: wrong? Oh, absolutely.
0: Have you ever been wrong, David? No,
1: I mean after <laughs> the fact, after like breaking a big like you have researched it and you've done it and you're like, yep, I know that lizard people don't exist. That's one of my all time favorites.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the record, they do exist. Yeah, definitely.
1: and then and then wait, I mean that would be pretty fantastic. But you've got a story out there, whether in print or online or whatever, and you've had to walk it back.
2: No, it's such a boring answer, but no, I've been very lucky in that so far, nothing big has got me. I've got little things wrong, and I'll usually, if it's on Webworm, I'll correct them in the next issue, or I'll write about it there. It's tiny stuff, like attributing the incorrect name to something, or, you know, nothing major. I'm, it'll get me at some point, and I tell you, when you send out a newsletter and you hit send on your computer and it goes out to a lot of people, terrifying, because hmm. with a website, or even a podcast, you can always take it down. With a newsletter, it's in people's inboxes, and that's one of the most terrifying feelings ever. Every time I hit send, terror. And that's there's
0: so many people are doing the math right now on what's the journalistic response. Like I feel like we're redistricting what journalism is and, and <laughs> adjudicating. And oh, it's a whole discussion. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you also have a very successful podcast. You are a naturally a storyteller. You're a journalist. So when you learn something that's super juicy, what is your responsibility or just super important? What's your responsibility to get it out as fast as possible versus to take Mm. the time to like sew it into the best story possible so that when it comes out, it has its biggest chance to make the biggest splash? Yeah,
2: I mean, the temptation always is... If i was to boil it down would be like you immediately want to tweet about it and just say it. it's this impulse it's that thing we're talking about of being first which is like a very selfish impulse i think to want to be the one to break the story that's the least of your worries the first thing you need to do and what's drilled into you at journalism school or wherever you learn that is you've got to check that the information's correct for one thing like just a real simple thing If you hear something, you need to find at least three sources that are remarkably different that can tell you exactly the same thing. Three minimum. And before you've got three, I wouldn't go near saying anything publicly. You need that. The other thing to do, which I think people forget about in the process, is figuring out where... And victims is kind of a shitty word to use. I'm going to use it in this instance because just calling someone a victim is kind of can be shitty. But Hmm. people that have had something awful happen to them just kind of clocking what they want and thinking, will the story, what will they think of it? How will it help them? If someone tells you something awful that's happened, do they want the story to be public? Will it help them? It's like a big balancing act of like public good versus the people that have been affected directly by this thing. That's like the other balancing act. So between sourcing it, if you can't source it, finding receipts, you know, you might learn about a story through one person, a source that doesn't want to be outed. You personally know what you think the story is, but you have to get it validated in another way, and that can be finding more sources. Or, yeah, getting receipts, finding evidence, finding documentation, screen grabs, photos, that's, documents. That's all
1: stuff you actually learned in journalism school, you said, or wherever you learned this? Or is this just Oh, your it's all. Own?
2: Yeah, I guess, I don't know, I like to think, you you sort of learn things, I think, traditionally in journalism school or in a newsroom. I think you learn a lot if you're in a newsroom. And I probably just sound like old and, and <laughs> washed up here, but I think it is slightly terrifying how everyone has a platform now and you can yeah. be a TikTok star with 50 million followers and you can be, I think there's a lot of kids would think they're watching journalism on TikTok. Yeah. And it's the opposite of everything I've just described. It is someone firing off that tweet the second they hear about it, packaged up in an entertaining way. And it's not journalism and it's terrifying. And TikTok is one of the biggest platforms for conspiracy theories being passed on at the moment. It's a nightmare. So yeah, I think journalism school and newsrooms, super important. We need more of it.
0: We're probably so far past this in the conversation around journalism. So thank you for like slowing down to where I'm at. But is it okay for Jeff Bezos to own the Washington Post? Oh, look, no, (laughs) it's a good question.
2: No, I, I think the fact that we have... I mean, what you're talking about there essentially is most media outlets being owned by very few companies and very few people. And no, that it's, it's awful. There's, things are compromised, I think, when you have someone that is one of the richest people in the world. Is he the richest person in the world at the moment? I can never. He goes back and I, forth.
1: And by the way, I I think that there's That's what a, it there's says a on his l- LinkedIn. I, <laughs> 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 I feel like the people in Saudi Arabia who own oil wells, they are not declaring their incomes. I think that we like keep bouncing back between like Carlos Slim and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, and they're laughing over in Saudi Arabia. It's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're literally trillionaires. Um, those guys so are broke. Yeah. Guy, exactly. yeah no, it's a, very, it's
2: a very good point. I think, but yeah, I, I think the wor- one of the worst things that can happen to journalism is when you're, you know, the the lack of diversity and ownership and who's running things. I think is yeah, it's a huge problem.
1: How do you then differentiate yourself? I made my dad and I disagree a lot in politics. Mm. He's a very conservative Republican. Oh, this is I fun. am not. Oh, this is fun. <laughs> I love your dad, and we agreed to read. I said I'm going to give you. I'll read any book you give me,
0: and oh, give me the shit.
1: <laughs> he gave me the case for Trump, and yeah. I gave... Oh,
0: my God. Love this. And,
1: and I gave him... Oh, my God, why am I fucking forgetting? What's the one about the New York Times, the women that broke the Harvey Weinstein story? Or oh, Catch she said, and Kill?
2: Or the no, other one? No, she said. Oh, she said, yeah.
1: She said. And because I know he hates Harvey Weinstein. I mean, that's an easy person to hate. But because he and many people around him were starting to feel like, Ed, and it is true, many media outlets are very bent in one direction. We know that. But I I was just trying to prove the point that, and she said, they show how long they held off on publishing. They lost scoops because they didn't have their three resources that uh, you may not agree with. Everything that the New York Times prints, and certainly not their op-ed page, and I'm not talking about anyone's op-ed page, but that the idea that there is no such thing as journalism anymore is not true. There is journalism. Oh,
2: absolutely. There is. There is. I feel for journalists because news websites and papers can be full of rubbish, but doesn't it covers up the work of the amazing journalists that do work at these institutions? Whether we're talking about the New York Times in America or the Herald in New Zealand or or any place, there are amazing journalists still out there doing work. And yeah, the book illustrates the process so well. And again, for all the people online, the conspiracy theorists that are out there chasing the cabal of pedophiles out there, it was journalists, one journalist specifically who started this and other journalists in their newsroom who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. It wasn't someone tapping on their computer sort of watching YouTube videos. You know, the Catholic pedophile drama, that all came from a newsroom. It's right. journalists who are cracking all this stuff, not conspiracy theorists who are like that. You know, a, a, a follower of QAnon has uncovered nothing real. There's been no arrests. Nothing has changed. It's journalists that create change with a lot of
0: this stuff. To really quickly, can I just ask? Did you read the book? And can you just say one interesting thing that was in the book? No, no, oh, no. The oh, the case, case for Trump. The case for Trump.
1: Oh no, the case for Trump. It was written. Were you by... won over? Did it win you That's what we want to know. (laughs) I was, listen, this was a real experiment on my part to come to a meeting of the minds with, not a meeting of the minds, but a shared respect with my dad. And I did want to understand where he was coming from. The guy who wrote it is a Republican farmer in Central California. And I did not agree with him at all. But Hmm. I did understand where he was coming from. He did base his arguments in his real-life experience, a lot about immigration, a lot about the migrant workers that he had been in contact with and utilized and hired over the years. He had his own experience. I didn't necessarily agree with his takeaways, but I respected that at least it was grounded in something that wasn't just well I heard.
2: Hmm. But it helps you understand the mentality and the mindset. And I think it's, yeah, it's not, yeah, some context of why people would be drawn into Trump's world and his mindset.
1: And my dad's a wealthy white man. And his <laughs> it, it, he's he's looking at the world that he grew up in and seeing it being threatened. Try to put myself in those shoes sometimes. And I say- The idea of
2: getting older is- terrifying i mean yeah. it's so annoying just like having so much like it's, it's annoying having to learn new shit you've spent your whole life learning things yeah i'm sure look at something like tiktok and it makes me feel ill i'm like oh god like another thing you know and it's, it's so too fast. much and yeah there's a risk of yeah i hope that as we age we can all keep taking in new stuff but it is that it, and sort of react that grouchy reaction right of like oh god not more
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't want to be relegated. I mean, my kids call me suburban mom. And it's oh, like, it's it's my, basically man. the same as saying, okay, boomer. You know what Oops. I mean? It's a huge diss. They're like, oh, suburban mom <laughs> says I have to wash the dishes. And I'm like, you're fucking right. Suburban mom <laughs> says you got to wash the goddamn dishes. But at the same time, that <laughs> is the natural cycle of the new, the young, they come along, they think they're inventing sex, friendship, manhood, (laughs) because I have boys. They literally believe that they're inventing all of these things and every generation does it. So sometimes suburban mom has learned to just shut up and listen because then I get the hot goss.
2: Yeah, not getting, yeah, just staying sane is probably staying silent sometimes when it comes to listening to the insane conversation your kids would be having.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: It's funny what you were saying before though, like it's probably moved on, but what you were saying, just I keep thinking about the whole being manly in America and and, or anywhere in the world and sort of how you think about that. A big part of Tickled was the fact that it was all the straightest people you could ever imagine, the MMA fighter in Muskegon, the football player. Yeah. You know, in in the South, it's like the most manly people imaginable were drawn into this world of accidentally making tickle fetish videos. And that's the reason this big master mind behind the whole thing had power over them. Because for like those straight, American men to figure out that oh no we're in something that could be a bit gay we didn't realize <laughs> that's how we weaponized it against them like if it was a bunch yeah. of gay dudes that were drawn into those tickling videos they wouldn't give a shit they'd be like you can try bribing me all you right. want like I don't I give got a, a got shit I got no
1: secrets right this was a <laughs> it was secret like, that's because a very
2: funny part of the film well funny awful
1: funny awful I, but if you're if you're willing to talk more I have two questions specifically about two shots of the film can I ask oh, something very up. specific if you don't Director want to be Julie all, is I here. hope I remember them <laughs> And there were two shots that I found that just sort of stopped me. One, when you and your producer are driving to, I think you're going, I can't remember where you're going, but you're mm. in the car, and for some reason, you're just shooting a car wreck on the side of the road. Oh, yeah. And the cops are there and there's a fender bender and there's people who are upset. Nobody's hurt. It's not gruesome or anything. You guys are just sort of talking about, well, what if we can't get him? What if he doesn't talk to us? I don't know if I can keep going. And the entire time we're watching the aftermath of a car wreck. Was that meant to be as symbolic as I took it?
2: Oh, yeah, totally. We're very um, unsubtle in in parts of that film. I think we're talking at one point about how this man is sort of victimizing young people and we see a hawk tearing apart, a squirrel <laughs> yeah. taking off. It's like, no, imagery, we did. We were very unsubtle. And that was one of those, yeah, the car wreck was definitely scripted and that footage matched with the voice at the time, which was this part in the film where we were being like, oh God, should we go on? Are we going to be okay?
1: So it wasn't <laughs> a happy accident?
2: No, it was actually, no, we shot the footage. I mean, we were shooting everywhere. So we basically, when it came to the edit, We went in there with all the stuff we'd shot in America. That was, I believe, a bit where I voiced it afterwards. So it was like a thought track. Uh, And so those images were basically matched to create some hopefully poetic effect.
1: So there's one other shot that, because, and I hope you... I hope you're a guest on our show and I'm not trying to like gotcha. But you go in slow-mo <laughs> now on do it. Get me. The oh Florida god. Florida guy face. Not the main villain that you've been tracking down who has the identity of the two females.
2: Now you're talking about Richard, the good tickler.
1: The good tickler. <laughs> but you that's funny that you should say that because this exact shot I'm talking about is it goes slow-mo on his face, and he looks like he is a demon. And it's he looks like a it just. Doesn't look right. And I thought, (laughs) now that was specific. And he was the good tickler. What was the decision making behind that?
2: No, I think I know the shot you're talking about. I saw it being less, and maybe this is more about our sexual preferences. I saw it less about being demonic and more about him just being kind of horny. He was sort of like (laughs) looking and like licking his lips kind of thing. And I guess the whole image of that, the whole idea of that scene was to kind of just go, oh, look, we all know this but." for some people tickling is a sexual thing Right. this is a guy in Florida who ties men down tickles them on camera people pay him for it brilliant <laughs> and yeah we did everything with slow-mo there was like a nipple being twisted in slow-mo yeah. there was like Richard looking and yeah it is like it is turned up to like 110% but I guess my intent with that was more like this is horny and sexual as opposed to like this man is evil or a predator or anything like that and for what it's worth Richard's become a really good friend and he was really happy with his portrayal he didn't look at it and go oh my god you made me look like a huge creep he was really into it
1: well he came right out in the beginning by saying this is a section he said it's just the same as you know SM or yeah. whips and change or bondage it's just a lot lighter but it's still about somebody not having control over their own pleasure slash pain
2: totally totally and after we shot that scene in that tickle chair i I did five minutes in that chair where he tickled me with all his tickling appliances. And I was like, because you, you're, you're strapped in, your arms are strapped uh-huh. and your legs are strapped. And it is the most, for one thing, definitely not a turn on. Secondly, it's just <laughs> being tickled when you can't get away. I guess it happened to us, like happened to me as a kid. I know you always like trying to get away from the tickling. But yeah. when you're an adult who can't get away and there's an adult tickling you, it's the worst. It's literally like they call it tickle torture and it is. It's And you laughed though.
1: It
0: sounds like
2: torture Oh you laugh but it's not a happy laugh. Tickling's such an unusual phenomenon because yeah I'm laughing, but there's nothing funny. (laughs) I don't find it funny. I find it a version of pain. I hated it.
1: And you didn't include that though in the video. In the
2: didn't movie. include it in the film. And It was too like no one needed to see that. It was it was horrific.
1: Hey, oh how interesting! <laughs> it's and actually then, on <laughs> that
2: footage is on his tickle porn site. So I'm fully clothed. I'm in this porn oh. site that Richard runs. That's a bunch of naked men being tickled. For him, but taking part in the film, I was like, you can use this footage that we're going to shoot of you tickling me, fully clothed. But it is my one porn appearance that's that I've it? ever been in.
1: Oh, and so I far. appreciate that you've shifted to saying "porn" like Americans, as opposed to "porno," as you said in the movie. Which I was like, it's so very not American. Oh,
2: I am becoming more American since I've been here. So really? you say "porn" as opposed to "porno," <laughs>
1: and you just said "porn." And in that movie, though, you kept saying he had a few appearances in pornos. And no, I'm not doing his accent because <laughs> I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> but at the end of the movie, and I'm I'm don't me to be beating the dead horse here because it's a great movie. If people haven't seen it. It's I think it's on HBO. Right now is how yeah, it's I it's on
2: Max it. at the moment, I think.
1: And it didn't get taken down with a lot, a lot of things just got just got taken off. It's of going HBO. though,
2: it's going soon. It They're is. gonna take it down at some point. It'll be on Amazon or Apple, I think, once it disappears from HBO.
1: Well, at the end, we find out. I don't want to ruin the end. Well, I'm gonna ruin the end.
2: I'll ruin it. If people haven't spoiler seen it, spoiler guys, now, if you haven't fault. seen it,
1: screw yourself. You do, <laughs> you do. I'm taking it back to the quit. You quit. On trying to get this guy, when it comes down to uh, my takeaway, and correct me, I hope you do, when you find out that he has so much family money that he is basically always going to be able to dodge justice and that, you know, he was allowed back into law school. The guy becomes a lawyer. He's a horrible human being. He has committed federal felonies. And then we kind of just go to black.
2: Yeah, that ending, I think people were either on board with that ending or they truly hated it. And it was less quitting. It was more we are done... The purpose of the film was to put the puzzle together. So it was basically like this sort of very vindictive man. We thought he disappeared 20 years ago when there was this other tickling spree. He's actually back again. This is exactly what he's done. Here are the victims. Here's our evidence. Here's who he is. Here's his family. Here's his connections. Here's his money. Here's his bank account. Everything... But then at some point, like sort of the, the the message I had at the end was you can be in America and do some horrific things and you're still walking around free and nothing, no ill will come of it. You will be fine. You will survive. And that was kind of my message. I couldn't do anything else. The FBI was aware Police were like, every, sort of everyone was aware of everything at that point. Nothing had happened, and so Do the you movie wish had to Something end. had
1: happened. Do you would you have wished the, the the movie to continue on to a part two or to or to wrap up with the FBI raiding? Oh, the his dream house?
2: no, the dream ending of that film would be like the FBI, like where with the FBI as they bust down D'Amato's door, they arrest him. He like says a tearful apology. Maybe he has some sort of redemptive arc. It would have been great to have that ending, but unfortunately, real life. occasionally it gives you the happy ending and I think a lot of documentaries yearn for that and, you know, things like The Jinx have, Mm. you know, this perfect ending where you've got the the alleged killer in the bathroom mumbling, oh shit, I did it all, I did it all, which we later find out is two bits of audio stitched together that were from very different parts of that audio transcript. But audiences are used to getting their big great ending. It's what we've been taught because all documentary now tries to emulate narrative film and having its perfect arc and its thrilling kind of conclusion. But I'm a strong believer that life is much messier and there aren't conclusions and you can show that someone is a pretty objectively terrible person that's harmed other people. And you can still be fine. You can have millions of dollars and be wandering around and be just fine. And I guess that's kind of the point I was trying to make.
1: When you decided to to quit, and I don't mean in a bad way, because we, mm. we do want emphasize that there is a point when quitting is the best thing you can do.
2: Oh, to, Very early on, yeah, When when we got like a lot of letters from lawyers in the United States and in New Zealand, I was ready to quit. Absolutely. So this was there's a little scene sort of earlier Sean in the film and it, you know, this, this started this investigation back in 2014, 2015 and, you know, did a Kickstarter. We raised $20,000, really exciting. Let's make this film. And immediately the legal letters started arriving. And my attitude back then was like, it's not worth it. This is a film about tickling. I, at that <laughs> point, I just wanted it to be something that sat on YouTube or Vimeo or something. I wasn't seeing it as being a bigger release. And yeah, I was totally ready to quit. And what stopped me was having essentially like having Dylan, my co-director, in the same mess with me and just having having him there and just being able to come together and talk to him and just sort of at the end of the day, just being like, oh, stuff it. Like we we have to do it. But I was absolutely ready to bail. I was I don't I can't deal with the lawyers and the threats. I didn't have any money. Is it worth it? For about a week, I was ready to quit. And then just having someone else in it with me, which was just so helpful. I think any problem you've got, if you've got someone else in it with you, it's it's so huge to not be alone in something. And with him by my side, sounds very cheesy, but yeah, we just decided, (laughs) fuck it, let's do it.
1: But for the end of it, when you were like, okay, well, here is our ending when when you would, you've gone to the DOJ or you've gone to the FBI, mm. you've gone to all the places you can go and they're not going to do anything. You put a great spin on it by saying sometimes narratives don't get tied up in a nice little bow. But was there a feeling of needing to craft that story? <laughs> Even craft that things don't get tied up in a nice bow when what you really wanted was the bow and that you were having to put your pencils down a little sooner than you'd like to? I think,
2: well, yeah, in a very practical sense, we had a certain budget and we couldn't keep shooting, we couldn't wait for something Mm. to happen because that Mm. was our other option. Mm. And if we had waited a year, for instance, David D'Amato had a heart attack and he died, I guess that would, if we'd waited for a year, that would be our ending, perhaps. I don't know whether the central character having a heart attack and dying would be a better ending. You know, so we could have waited for life to happen. (laughs) And with more budget and maybe more resources, maybe we could have, but I'm still not sure we should have. I mean, the end of that film is a conversation between me and his stepmother, Dorothy, and she paints this portrait about him, about the main bad guy in the film, that we didn't know any of this. Like We, we learned about his upbringing and perhaps got a hint of why he was like he was. And I think that for me, hopefully, that sort of emotional feeling of, oh, we feel sorry for him somewhat and we understand where he's coming from, that to me felt like a better emotional ending. I'd rather have that than waiting around for a year. He has a heart attack. I don't know. I just, I guess my point is, we you can with a documentary, the longer you wait, the more story will happen. Right. But I just feel emotionally and technically, we told the story we wanted to tell, which was solving the mystery of who this mysterious tickler was, what they were doing, and why they were doing it.
0: The conflict here is that David thinks you don't need a pretty little bow to end something, and Julie is trying to find the pretty little bow to end this You need interview. the bow. Yeah. That yeah. is What's so the bow?
1: exactly... <laughs> true i do i want to get an a and <laughs> she in wants your, to get an a i want She's my like, fucking on. A. what's the conclusion here
0: yes don't you, give it to her david but
1: did you notice chad how much in that just in that story he kept saying well in america xyz and in america when then the american lawyers are you saying dave that had this whole narrative taken place the tickler the lawyers the your investigation taken place in new zealand it would have had a different ending Oh, it
2: wouldn't have happened. This story could have only happened in America, where you have someone with such wealth who just wants something so specific, who has access to, you know, just the legal system in America and the way people use it to abuse other people. That doesn't exist in the same way in New Zealand. It's such an American story. The young people that got drawn into it, the MMA fighters, the football players... Uh. It's such an American story, this need for people with no money who desperately needed money from some mysterious benefactor. I think it couldn't have happened anywhere but in America. And maybe this is your if I <sighs> Thank hadn't, you. If I Thanks. hadn't come out in <laughs> New Zealand all those years ago, David D'Amato, the subject of Tickled, would have never known that I was bisexual. And when I'd inquired originally about this mysterious tickling company in America for a tiny little story I was going to do, he wouldn't have replied with this psychotic, oh my God, you're gay. We don't deal with anyone gay. And there would have been no tickled. If I hadn't come out publicly and David Demato hadn't been able to Google my name and find out I was bisexual, there would be no tickles. I wouldn't have left my little newsroom in New Zealand. I wouldn't have gone into documentary. I wouldn't have done that show for Netflix and I wouldn't have moved to America. So my life, if I hadn't come out, even just something simple as career-wise would just be completely different.
0: It sounds like, like the rest of, or at least some places in the world, look at America the way that we look at Las Vegas specifically. Yeah, it, what would be a synonym there? That is
1: fantastic, Chad. Would,
0: that which is
1: chaotic,
0: gross. Because yeah. I've I've never been to Las Vegas on purpose. But oh really? It, you've avoided. Wait, it? Congratulations! I have avoided going to will? Las Vegas on. Uh, well, no, I've never been. I don't. I don't want to go. It just doesn't sound doesn't sound like a great time. It doesn't look like a great time. It looks like a shopping mall. Yeah. Is there a synonym? You said you said it so beautifully. I can't remember exactly what you said, but you basically said, this story can only take place in America. It is a specifically American story. Hmm. Is there like another word we could use to replace American there? Like, it sounds like it is a specifically... Excess. I- excess. Uh, ah, okay. This
2: country is excess. There's too much of everything. Everything's turned up past 10 When you order a meal, everything's huge. It comes with a huge side of fries. (laughs) Um, You know, when you're a tickling (laughs) fetishist and you want to indulge in your fantasy, you don't just make it small. You go big. You start flying in people from business class from New Zealand and paying them thousands of dollars and creating a whole tickling league just to fulfill your fantasy. So everything's bigger. Everything's excessive. And with that excess is the other side where a bunch of people don't have anything and they want that excess and it creates this awful, strange power dynamic that we're all stuck in. And that's, I think, what makes America sort of both wonderful and terrible at the same time.
0: The word I was looking for was exploitative, but... Yeah, exploitative for sure, absolutely.
2: Yeah, it is that as well. I know. I I get, I never want to be the guy, the outsider who's in like judging... America and New Zealand has its problems as well like New Zealand's got all the problems America has New Zealand has on a level as well I just think America just cranks things up a little bit higher than a lot of the West and I I love it here I mean I love the madness and it's a big part of why I like being here and with flight the spirit every week I get to explore some other unusual aspect of your country and I feel like very lucky to be able to do that and I've found Americans to be the most I know, I, I really like it here and I like the people and I am having a good time, please don't kick me out.
1: Well, you can always find somebody to talk to on your podcast, my sons and I listened to your circumcision episode together, and they oh. are, uh, about that was not my that choice, close. that was, again, yeah. it fell right into line with what you said, ah. uh, mm-hmm. Amer- American men want their son's penises to look like theirs. And maybe men all over the world do. I, I don't know if totally. that was specifically the, what you were addressing. And since I am not the owner of a penis, had we been talking about a vagina, mm, doing mm-hmm. anything to any female parts, I would have said, I get veto power here. You would have but in. my husband at the time, he said, this is going to happen. And I didn't disagree with him. I said, this is your, you know, this is how I feel, but I will defer to you. You have a penis. I don't. To me, it seems insane that you would cut off all the... Mm-hmm nerve endings.
2: Chop off some nerves for the sake of it. Yeah.
1: So that just brings me to one last thing I wanted to ask. When do you know if it's time to quit America? You said you loved it. You're repulsed by it. You can't get enough of it. (laughs) When do you quit America? What (laughs) a segue.
2: Well, at the moment, I still feel I'm in the process of quitting New Zealand because I'm still shifting my life here. You know, I just went to the DMV for the first time the other day to try and get an American driver's license. I've got a social security number now. I'm getting trying to figure out like the right insurance to it's all I'm still like quitting New Zealand so and I love New Zealand and so I don't know. I feel very torn between the two. Oh. I'm not trapped over here anymore. The New Zealand border is now open cuz they're letting people in and and covid's doing its thing and thankfully our vaccination rates are up high. So I can go back. But at the moment, I really like it here and I like the people I've met. Even Even you guys are great. Like, you're two new people (laughs) I've just met and you're wonderful. Even you, like, everyone I meet is like lovely and kind. And at some point, I will go back to New Zealand because it's where I'm from and I love it there. But I reckon I've got a little bit of America left. I want to stay here
0: for at least a couple of years. Do you think it matters? I feel like we have such a belonging to country thing here in the United States. Do you think about that? Like, what country do I belong to? What country do I live in? And look, I'm thinking about it because I'm encountering your tax
2: system for the first Welcome. time. Welcome, you're and, really and American I'm, now. I don't know if you've ever. I ran into, I ran into a true nightmare scenario that I didn't know was possible, oh, where you no. can get double tax. So I get taxed for like if I do a job. And I get paid for it i'll get taxed in new zealand and then because i live here now america comes in and also takes those new zealand earnings and taxes it again mm. so that's something new i've found so apart from really boring stuff like life admin and taxing it doesn't matter like where you live you live where your friends are and where you're enjoying yourself and where you find family i think but i think just in a very practical sense you do get tied to the place where that is sort of taxing you and and dealing with all that sort of shit. It gets very weirdly complicated. I never thought moving to America (laughs) was really hard. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) You don't make it easy. It's very expensive. It's very confusing. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm a a white boy from New Zealand. I got a a visa granted because I work in the, supposedly, Mm. the entertainment industry. Mm. So I paid my way in here. You pay a lawyer that will cover, that will get your visa. I'm one of the lucky ones, and I still find it ridiculously hard. So, God, if you're not a privileged person like me trying to get in here, I mean, yeah, that's a whole other set of issues that
0: this country well, has, I, you know? I'm the lucky one. It's like a flight, a to, flight to, Vegas, to Vegas. Very expensive. Oh, yeah. We're going to get you to Vegas. You know what You've they have in Vegas? I'll go with you, David.
2: Good, Chad. Yeah, me and you. It is oh, all things correct. It's and hideous.
1: They, but Nevada, Nevada, as it is properly called, by the way, because I grew up calling it Nevada. What do you call it, Chad? I call Nevada, it Nevada, but Nevada, it when you get, you get west to the Mississippi Nevada. and you learn that it's actually Nevada. And Nevada has much huh, uh, gentler okay. taxes. So don't, don't write it off Completely, don't mm. don't go quitting the the Republic oh, of California okay. or the United States as a whole until you check it out.
2: Okay, this is a good. Yeah. Okay, this is a good. This is a good info <laughs> to have. Um, I don't have a lot of money to tax, which is good. And actually, when you're a journalist, not having a lot of money is a really good thing because there's less to worry about. I think when you've got a lot of things mm. and people yeah. start threatening to sue you, it can get scary. I think when you have very little, being sued is less scary, which is a kind of a fun aspect to not well, having a lot of money. <laughs>
0: Which connects back to the irony of the wealthiest person on Earth owning a newspaper. It's yeah, it's a lot.
2: It's a lot to take in. The yeah, the Bezos Musk Empire slash space race slash quest to stay alive for the longest amount of time is slash quest quest to quest to to mine
1: Greenland as it melts for the all the incredible minerals that are up there. Apparently, it's it's (gasps) billionaires' row up there. That's the new Malibu. Oh!
2: Oh my God! I didn't oh, know wow. that. Oh wow! You're putting me Thanks on. That. Is that, oh no! Do people know that, or is that. that, that like, like
1: uh... Greenland is melting at a you know a rate that no one foresaw, and that these billionaires, uh, I think they name check. I know they name check Bezos. I th- also believe Musk in that article, and I don't remember where it was that they are oh. can't. They're trying to you know make a claim to to some minerals up there because they're uncovering untapped resources. So. Mm. I know, right? That's your next episode of something, (sighs) Dave.
0: Yeah, I I was going to ask, can you get get us ahead of the curve on like, is there a conspiracy that's coming down the pike that we will know about soon that we can know about now? It's
2: all... Look, I wish I could give you some carefully formulated answer to that. It's just going to be more of the same, you know, conspiracy theories, they're all recycled right from the beginning of time it's going to be more versions of kids trapped in underground basements being like farmed for a of chrome. It's Oh, that's be, the, it's, that's it's,
1: the, that, that eventually oh, ends yeah. up with the Jews drinking blood in California. That's where it trickles down. Yeah.
2: Always, yeah. oh, it always, and that, you've nailed it. It's always <laughs> going to end up with the Jews <laughs> drinking blood. It's the same shit recycled, just like a new flashy front on the story, but it's the same story at the heart of it all. It's incredibly depressing and we just like, Caught in a constant loop. I hate it.
1: <laughs> well, I hope you don't quit it because I genuinely enjoy listening to Flightless Bird, to Armchaired and Dangerous. I always feel like I'm saying it weird when I say it out loud. Thank you. And Armchaired That's and a Dangerous. Weird name. And you I'm thrilled it. to hear that you're not going to quit the U.S. anytime soon. But I really appreciate that you came to talk oh, about I your quits it with us. You are every bit as interesting as I thought you were. You are better looking, which is frustrating. <gasps>
2: Wow, no on the
1: online and he's cute in all the interviews and stuff, but you know what you, maybe he oh. look like a schlubby American right now, and that's that's hot. It's kind of california eh? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, i need it i need a I need a haircut, but no, that's good. I appreciate <laughs> having your hotness approval, and I hope to bring you more good podcasts and more. Thank you, American weirdness. Thank you, Thank you, David.
1: I have lots of ideas for your for your Pleasure. upcoming podcast. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send them to you. No, I do. Yeah, please
2: send them to me. Taking ideas now. It's difficult making a weekly.
0: Let's podcast, start a conspiracy right? theory about Julie. About I'm me. Sure, there there are some I'm good sure. ones. Can I'm sure there are. I never know though. That
1: would that would entail me come up having with some myself. So no, that's not going to happen. But we really do appreciate you coming. Thank you. You are this. lovely. I lovely could talk to you, to you Thank all you, day. Baby. Obviously, I'm a blabbermouth. Chad.
0: Yeah.
2: No, you're both great. No, thanks. It's nice to meet you, Julian, Chad, and I'm sure you'll so. tell each as other long as down you the i to quit somewhere. America. Okay. I'm not going to quit. I'm staying. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.